The prisoner will stand. Is there any legal cause why sentence should not now be pronounced? There being no legal cause why sentence should not now be pronounced, it is the judgment and sentence of this court that for the crime of murder in the first degree, of which you have been convicted by verdict of the jury, carrying with it the extreme penalty of the law, you, Robert Siverton, be delivered by the Sheriff of Los Angeles County to the Warden of State Prison, to be by said Warden executed and put to death upon the 19th day of the month of September in the year of our Lord, 1935, in the manner provided by the laws of the State of California. And may God have mercy on your soul. Hello there, and welcome to episode 6 of Gilded in Blood, the Horror Lit Podcast. My name is Kevin, and you are joining me as I record this on a early, early morning on Saturday. The sun is not yet even out, and apparently, in my state, that is the only time of the day where everything is not molten hot. So... We're going to go ahead and get this going a little bit earlier on than we usually do because we are in the height of summer, and in my state that means it's hell every single day. So we'll do this before the sun gets up and starts cooking us. We've got a pretty interesting book for you today. This is a Lesser No Nightmares episode. This is a book you've probably not heard of. If you've heard of this story, you've probably seen the movie. This book that we're doing today is They Shoot Horses, Don't They? by Horace McCoy, written in 1935. As always, we're going to go ahead and get our conversation started with a little bit of background about the author, Horace McCoy. He was born in Tennessee in 1897, died in California in 1955. Uh, the film adaptation that I referenced earlier was not actually made until 1969, a good amount of time after this book was written. He served in Air Force in World War I, and after he got home, he started publishing pulp and noir mystery stories in the 1920s. He worked a variety of jobs, uh, including as a bouncer for a bar on a Santa Monica Pier. And the things he saw there gave him the idea for this book, which turned out to be his best-known work. Now, as should be made obvious by the title of the category we're dealing with today, The Lesser Known Nightmares, uh, the whole point of these episodes is to bring to light some books and some authors that may not be as popular as, as some of our better known ones, you know, our Kings, our, our Barkers, our Anne Rices, things of that nature. And usually those are going to be traditional horror authors. You, you'll see some people who are working in the genre that don't get as much recognition. And I do want to give some time over to those people. And interestingly enough, you probably wouldn't think of Horace McCoy as a horror novelist. As I said, he dealt really with uh, noir stories, which we're going to get into what that's all about here in a little bit, and mystery. But this particular book... Uh, hit so many topics and so many notes 
that are more horror than than mystery or noir. This is a very brutal, uh, dark, pessimistic, nihilistic book, and I feel it slots really well into the horror genre, so I chose that to be our first lesser-known nightmares. As always, you'll hear me out and make the judgment for yourself, but uh, I hope you, you will see things from my point of view and see that this very short book, it's, it's basically a novella. It's, it's 120 pages long with fairly small, uh, fairly large font, uh, when it comes to the copy that I read. So it's not a very long story, which means it might not be a very long episode this time, but it still is a story that really, really fits into the horror genre. So we'll get into that uh, right now, let's get started with a plot summary of our book. This tells the story of Robert and Gloria, who are two struggling actors trying to get into Hollywood. And earlier on in the book, they decide that they'll join up for a dance marathon in order to get some notice from some of the studios, some of the producers, some of the directors, as well as trying to win a $1,000 prize. Uh, it's said at the time that Hollywood producers and directors and kind of big wigs, movers and shakers in the industry attend these marathons to scout for possible talent. So that is their on the surface reason for wanting to get into this, you know, help them make their big break. But on a deeper and more fundamental level, they're trying to win that thousand dollar prize. And even deeper than that on Maslow's hierarchy is a desire for free room and board and free food for as long as they are in the marathon. And there's a purpose for that, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. The genesis of the novel, the, the reason the novel was kind of written, uh, as I said earlier, was that Horace McCoy worked at some of these uh, dance marathon areas, the bars, dance halls, and he saw some of these in action and decided to write uh, his first novel, over them. These dance marathons, as they, they were known, became popular during the 1920s and hit their peak during the Great Depression, which is an era of time that we're going to dive into. Uh, they were seen as cheap form of entertainment. Uh, you could pay your ticket, go in and watch for as long as you wanted. Uh, better than a movie because a movie's over in an uh, hour and a half or two hours. And this, you could stay there for as long as you like. Now, the real meat and potatoes of what these were actually doing is revealed when we learn that they were also called endurance marathons. You know, we hear that term dance and we think, oh, lovely, and people dancing and having fun and everything. It quickly descends into just this endurance grind to see who can stay literally standing uh, at the end to get this money prize. And as you can expect, there was a fair amount of criticism about these activities, these marathons. Various groups protested the practice based on a variety of concerns. They were often held in bars and dance halls, as we've mentioned, and those were obviously and always seen as dens of vice, uh, your prostitution, violence, gambling, things of that nature. And contestants were often put to humiliating extremes to win fame and money. So that drew a lot of criticism. Obviously, these places were linked to criminal activity. We've, we've already mentioned, you know, prostitution. 
violence, gambling, even theft, and some other worse things, murder, uh, was certainly known to take place at these places. And the name itself, Dance Marathon, is somewhat ironic. Uh, Dances are meant to be expressions of joy, but marathons really descended into these grueling, desperate slogs for people who were willing to do damn near anything uh, to win not only prestige, which that was fairly fleeting and everybody sort of knew it, but more often the the prize money, which would allow them to (laughs) keep going in one of the darkest and most desperate times in American history. But before we get to a discussion over the Great Depression, I do want to take a moment and talk about uh, noir fiction and uh, specifically the How Done It, which is a, a kind of an offshoot of mystery. So let's talk about noir fiction first. This is a subgenre of crime fiction, and it's a the the genre is known for dark themes and morally questionable characters. It's also called hard-boiled, so you'll see that term come up if you do a deep dive into noir fiction, which I highly recommend. I, most of you listening here are probably huge horror fans, and that's understandable, but maybe fewer of you are into mystery, crime fiction, though the genres seem to Venn diagram a few times. I highly recommend you give some of the great noir fiction a try. It's wonderful literature. It's very, very enjoyable. I would say go for it. I think you're going to find enough there to enjoy, even if you're a horror fan. And many of the best known film noir movies come from existing works of literature. I'm thinking here of Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon, James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice in Double Indemnity, Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, uh, Mickey Spillane's Kiss Me Deadly. All of these are very well-known movies, but they all came from existing source material. And if you like the movies, you will love the books, especially uh, James M. Cain's stories, which are pretty short pretty fast-paced, pretty cut-and-dried, but they are often much darker than the movie versions uh, that came out. This genre is often marked by this clipped, slang-ridden language, as well as harshness and expression, including vulgarity, which for the time, you know, these 20s, 30s, and 40s was pretty subversive and pretty out there. And the character of Gloria in our book today really speaks in a typical noir fashion, and it shows McCoy's roots as a pulp writer. You hear her say some pretty extreme things, though we do see that censorship was still an issue at this point, so anytime she drops the F-bomb, it's not actually written on the page, it's just a, a line, but we know what she's saying. And as I mentioned before, noir stories are typically very fast-paced. Uh, The novel that we're talking about today actually speeds past the first part of the dance where people are still literally dancing, uh, staying moving, and really gets started when people are getting tired and desperate. And very early on, you kind of realize that's to avoid potentially boring parts of the story. McCoy does not want you to slow down in this book. He doesn't want to give you any reason to stop and rest, much like the characters in the book who don't get all that much rest and quickly become tired and worn out. 
he writes in the same way. The book continually moves forward and you don't really get any downtime at all in this book. And that's typical of noir fiction. Now, I also mentioned uh, something called the How Dunnit. Uh, I believe that anybody familiar with literature has probably heard of the Who Done It, uh, a mystery subgenre, and it, this is distinct from the typical Who Done It because it lets us know who the guilty party is right away. Uh, most mystery, I'm, I'm thinking of. Agatha Christie, who is probably kind of the queen of mystery, the whole concept, the whole point of each one of her books is, okay, we've had this murder, we've had this crime happen, and the whole point of the book is to find out who done it, who, who did the crime. Well, these types of books dispense with that immediately. Robert lets the reader know immediately that he did in sh indeed shoot Gloria. He killed her, and we find that out on the very first one or two pages. So the question of the novel is not what or who, but how and why. We already know the ending of the book immediately as we get started. So basically our story is how did we get here and why? Why did Robert shoot Gloria? We know that he is being sentenced for this crime. We know right away that he is not going to escape justice. So why did he do this? How did we get to this point? And that is the how done it. Now, the judge's ruling, which I used as my cold open today, is split up throughout the book. There are a very appropriate 13 chapters of this book, and each one of those sections begins each chapter. So we start each chapter getting a little bit closer to the final result of the book, the font actually gets progressively larger on the page uh, and it impels the reader forward, making for this fast, intense read. And it also creates this sense of inescapable doom. We know that he is going to be put to death and it keeps the reader kind of moving forward with this knowledge that we're moving towards death, this ultimate end. So now that we've got the style kind of done and out of the way, let's get talking about the book proper. And I think we need to start our conversation with the context in which this book is written, the time that it's set, and that is, of course, the Great Depression. Now, this was a period of economic depression and unemployment. Uh, it gained global notice on what's called Black Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, and that was the stock market crash. Most people will remember this from American history. We have people jumping out the windows because they've lost all of their money, so on and so forth. And this ran for about a decade. It, it lasted until about 1939 when some multiple events kind of started pulling the country out of this hole that it found itself in, not the least of which was involvement in World War II, which really got our economy back up on its feet kind of started chugging along again. But for that 10-year period, things were very, very bleak. Massive unemployment, uh, lack of resources, people out on the street doing desperate things to survive. And that's the time in which this story is set. A little bit of a rabbit trail here. I want to pause the conversation about the book and talk about the fact that the Great Depression was also credited with the Universal Monsters boom. Uh, if you look at some of those classic monster movies, Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, The Mummy, so on and so forth, all those 
excellent, wonderful silver screen legend movies that really got the horror genre up on its feet and running, that came as almost a direct result of the Great Depression. And you will notice if you do some research into times of horror booms, they tend to align with economic and societal busts. When things get bad societally, horror gets excellent. And there's a reason for that. The escape value of horror really kicks in when people need something to escape from. So when things are getting hard in people's lives, they want to go and see lives that are going worse than theirs. It's an interesting coping mechanism. So if you don't have a job, you can't pay your bills, you're struggling, you can't find enough food to eat, what's going to make you feel better? A happy, cheerful film that shows people in the height of their life? No, you, you want to go see somebody doing worse than you are so that you can say, well, at least I'm not being chased by a monster. And this is not just something flippant that I'm throwing out there as a hypothesis with no backing. If you look at the times of real economic and societal stress throughout our country, they tend to hit with booms in the horror genre. Obviously, the 30s with the Universal Monsters kind of aligns with the Great Depression. Another big point is the horror boom of the 70s, where we had yet another period of societal stress. We had the gas crisis. We had Nixon's White House. All of these things tend to create horror that is, looking back on it, excellent and really worthy of our time and attention. So just an interesting way that horror can reflect the society in which it's made and in a way that you might not have thought about. But let's get back to our book. Let's get back to the Depression. The Depression in this story, it's kind of cliche to say, oh, the Depression was another character. And it while it's not a character, obviously, the setting really is much more important to this story than even some other settings are to other stories, because the Depression drives these dancers to extremes. And that's the whole point of the book, is that everybody here in the dance marathon uh, is desperate for something. Some for money, some for fame, some for simple sustenance. Uh, some for even other things. So the depression is the driving force behind why these people stay on the floor in the face of uh, exhaustion, of violence, of humiliation. The depression is the reason behind it. For example, our narrator, Robert, likes the idea of free food better than the $1,000. The $1,000 is so far above his imagination that he can't even really wrap his mind around it. It doesn't even matter because it might as well not be there because he can't, he's never seen a thousand dollars in his life. He can't imagine amount, that amount of money, but he can imagine the fact that for as long as he stays in this contest, he gets free food. He gets meals throughout the day. He gets a place to sleep, albeit for very short periods of time throughout the day. Another contestant, Maddie, has to stop the marathon due to complications with her menstrual cycle and considers it actually says to another contestant that she's considering damaging her reproductive organs so that such a thing 
won't happen in future marathons because the, she's made this kind of her bread and butter going to these marathons, getting this free food, and sometimes even winning prizes. And this shows that the life and generation is less important than uh, money and, and, and food daily, which Yes, if you're boiling things down to self-preservation, makes perfect sense. You're certainly not going to have a kid if you starve to death. So there, there's, a, there's a certain amount of understandable uh, nature to this. But the concept that she is willing to sterilize herself so that she can keep doing these marathons and winning this money is pretty extreme. About halfway through the book, the dancers have been at it for a full month. Now, understand here that the dancers to stay in the marathon must continually move for an hour and 50 minute period. And then they get a 10 minute break and then they have to get back up and keep moving. The concept that they have to actually dance, you know, waltz or two step or whatever is thrown away pretty early on. The whole concept is they need to keep moving. They can walk around, they can talk to each other, they can do anything, but they have to stay moving. But there is no eight hour period where they're allowed to actually sleep and rest. There's not even a one hour period. They have to move for an hour and 50 minutes. They get a 10 minute break during which they can uh, wash themselves, sleep, which is the big deal. Uh, lay down and get off their feet, and then they have to get back up and do it. These people have been doing this continually for a month. I personally can't even imagine it. Uh, if I had to do this for two days, I would be done. No, thank you. I'll, I'll go starve on the street. Uh, these people have been doing this for a month, which is really eye-opening when you hit that point in the book. Uh, it really brings into focus just how exhausted and how desperate these people are. Uh, they're literally breaking down their bodies in order to get this money. And for some, this notice by a production company that will give them a job so they won't have to do this anymore. Now, since these dancers are driven to such extreme measures, the situation really allows the managers of the marathon to take advantage of the dance contestants. Many of the management sleep with the female dancers. Uh, it's seen as an effort for the dancers to curry favor, such as uh, we'll get into a little bit later what a derby is, it's kind of this promotional stunt. But uh, they might be currying favor for like a close finish in a derby. Uh, they might just be trying to get a, a little bit more rest. You know, if you're if you're down below the stage doing whatever you're doing, you don't have to be on your feet moving around uh, in the dance. So the managers of the marathon are really taking advantage of the situation pretty hardcore. However, what I like about this book especially is that nothing is strictly black and white. The morals are all over the place in this. While you would expect the managers of this dance marathon to be wholly repugnant people if they're taking advantage of the female contestants and so on and so forth, that does not mean that they don't have some level of compassion. In fact, at the end of the book, when the marathon is forced to break up without a winner and they have the opportunity to send everybody home with no money whatsoever, they actually decide to take the $1,000 prize, add another thousand dollars to it and then split that two thousand dollar pot between all of the remaining contestants so at the end every person gets fifty dollars when they could just be sent out 
onto the street and say, well, sorry, our marathon ended prematurely, so nobody gets the prize. And you'd expect them to kind of do that because why not? They're, they're already doing morally questionable things earlier on in the book, but these people are not monsters. They, they do, to a certain extent, care for these people. So it seems fair. Everybody gets $50, everybody goes home with something, but it's clear when you read that, that $50 is not going to get anybody very far in this era. $1,000 may allow a person time enough to, to set up and actually create a sustaining situation. $50 is going to do them pretty good for maybe a few weeks, maybe even a few months, and then they're going to be right back into this desperate situation where they have no funds and they have to get into some extreme situation just to survive. So it really highlights the hopelessness of life during the Depression, the extremes to which these people will go to. So now that we've talked about the era that kind of creates the world for this book, let's get into some deeper topics. We talked last time with Bambi about existentialism, and we're going to add a new philosophical topic to this conversation nihilism. So existentialism, we already kind of talked about what that is, and it also tends to focus on the absurd, which is the concept of attempting to find meaning in an inherently meaningless universe is at best foolish and at worst self-destructive. So this book clearly has a strong existentialist angle, uh, an absurdity that these people are struggling so hard to survive in a in a world that does not care about them. And that leads to our second topic, our second uh, philosophical concept, which is nihilism. Really boiled down, it's kind of the belief that nothing in life matters at all, but I am going to pull out Merriam-Webster here. And per Merriam-Webster, it is, quote, a viewpoint that traditional values and beliefs are unfounded and that existence is senseless and useless, unquote. And the extreme desperation of the Depression would seem to lend credence to that viewpoint. If you are mired in a 10-year period where everything you do is meaningless, everything you do is the senseless struggle to survive, you would get very depressed. Obviously, you would get to believe that nothing really matters. What's the point of living in a universe that is cruel and capricious and random and seemingly is antagonistic toward you? So the world of the novel seems random and cruel with no respect for innocent people. Uh, these people did nothing to deserve the situations they find themselves in. And indeed, our event that ends the book, one of the spectators, Mrs. Layden, who was a big fan of our focus couple, Robert and Gloria, is hit by a stray bullet during a fight in the bar that is part of this dance hall. And it's this killing that shuts down the marathon. And there's some deliciously dark irony in that her favorite couple was Robert and Gloria, and her death leads to the circumstance that kills them both. When she dies, they decide to shut down the marathon. This pushes Gloria into further blackness and convinces Robert to kill her. So this was not an unfounded murder. This was a murder that was actually asked for, but the impetus behind it was Mrs. Layden dying. So this, this couple that she cared for, uh, in a way she ended up destroying Robert, one of our 
duo brings up the fact that another contestant, Mario, uh, gets taken away early on in the book. He seems that he is wanted for murder. And Robert comments the fact on the fact that he was a nice person. He was a, a very cordial person. He was, he was very kind. And this shows that these moral absolutes don't really fit into a universe that has no intrinsic morality. The common equation sh- most people would expect is, you know, people who do bad things should equate to overall bad people, but that's not really the case. Uh, people can do bad things, but also be kind, nice people. And he also says the same of himself. You know, this is all narrated with the understanding that he has come to this point in his life where he has actually murdered somebody. But he says the same of himself. He says, you know, I've, I've killed Gloria, but I'm a nice person. I care about people. Uh, and it brings up this tough question. Was he kind in killing Gloria since she desperately wanted him to do it. This was requested of him. And he lets the reader know that fairly early on. It's not a part that he keeps hidden until the end of the story. Gloria asked for this. Gloria wanted to die. So in killing her, is he doing her a kindness? And this moral question is brought up in in other issues too such as you know euthanasia which are these are tough conversations these are tough questions to to ask and this book is bringing up similar things and it does kind of dive into these existential questions of you know is the point of living to do good and i i'm using air quotes around that since the universe itself doesn't have good or bad it just has events. Uh, humans are the only th- only things on earth or even in the universe, so far as we know, that attach morality to any event. That's uh, a human construct. Uh, a wolf eating a rabbit does not believe that he's doing anything bad. It's just he's surviving. So this human construct of morality really does have a tough time when brought up against this existential question, and especially a nihilistic question. And Gloria is really our true voice of nihilism in this novel. She is incessantly pessimistic, depressed. She has the worst view of humanity of probably any character I've ever read in any novel. Uh, And she has a a horrible life. Uh, That which she recounts to uh, Robert uh, does seem pretty bad. It's kind of the classic broken home situation. An uncle who is, you know, incessantly pawing at her, uh, running away early on, getting involved in some bad relationships, some abusive relationships, and trying to get out to Hollywood to chase this dream of making it big and being able to sustain herself and getting out to California to find that things are no better. In fact, they may be a tad worse. So she recounts these terrible things in this flat, matter-of-fact tone, and it shows that she considers these things natural to the world. She looks at the world and she sees a place of inherent cruelty and hardship. She doesn't see any beauty in it at all. She doesn't feel that there's a point to life. And from the jump, she wants to die, but she can't seem to bring herself to commit suicide. So that's why she asks Robert to do what he does at the end of the novel. And her despair and nihilism seem infectious. It's not just her. She does her best to spread it around to absolutely everybody. Robert begins the novel uh, 
certainly in a desperate situation, he's in the exact same situation as Glory. He doesn't have her bad history, but he doesn't have anything going for him at all, and he's trying his best to survive. But at the same time, he can appreciate things like natural beauty. Uh, he finds it life-sustaining and refreshing, but time spent with Gloria this time in this pressure cooker with this incessantly pessimistic and depressed person really changes him and changes his outlook on everything. In fact, if we go to the end of the novel and the ultimate wrap-up, Robert knows what's going to happen if he shoots Glory. He, he knows that he is literally throwing his life away, but he does it anyway. So doing this, uh, doing as Gloria asks, is just as much suicide as it is murder. She has taken a person who, while certainly having a hard life, still has things in his life that he wants to live for, be it just the sunrise, the, uh, something that he is absolutely spellbound by, and strips all that away and turns him into a suicidal case as well. And she seems almost eager to spread this point of view to everyone. Another contestant, uh, Ruby, a fellow dancer, is pregnant while this marathon is going on, and she constantly, Gloria constantly works on Ruby to get an abortion. Uh, Ruby's partner, uh, the father of the child, actually talks to Robert and says, hey, you need to ask Gloria to lay off Ruby. She's asking her to get this abortion. She needs to stop that right now. And she keeps going and pressing and pressing, and it actually turns into this fight that turns these couples uh, against each other. And Gloria's point of view here is that she feels it's stupid and cruel to bring a new life into a world this bad. So her cynicism is pretty strong, and she finds this hypocrisy pretty much everywhere. There's a scene later on where uh, two women from the Mother's League for Good Morals uh, come in and object to the to the dance marathon, talk to the management, and they raise some obvious issues, the, the same issues that we're going to raise too, uh, the problems with things like this, but they really come off as preachy and self-righteous, and Gloria zeroes in on that and uses that to attack them, calls them hypocrites, uh, says, yeah, I, I know people like you. All you want to do is just take fun away from everybody because you can't have fun and really lays into these two ladies. In fact, drives them out with some pretty harsh language. It's a bit of a satisfying scene because the ladies are pretty morally self-righteous. They're, they're, they're looking down their nose at everybody here. But even though inside you cheer a little bit for Gloria kind of running these people off, we then see her weep after this confrontation, and it shows that this gives her no pleasure or satisfaction, and that for her, life is just cruel and worthless. So Gloria is really the voice of negativity in this novel, a, a novel that is set during a time that breeds negativity, and Gloria is kind of the voice of that within this. So since we've just talked about these ladies from the Mother's League for Good Morals, let's get into the marathon itself and the problems that uh, it poses. And I've kind of titled this section Public Spectacle because the dance marathon has its roots in a lot of our history and even our current, shall we say, entertainment proclivities. The dance marathon has its roots in the gladiators of ancient Rome, obviously. That's that's one of the first connections that you'll make. Yes, these people are not murdering each other, but it seems that they are at the, at the very end. 
And this is what people are coming to see. They are coming to see people in desperate situations. And it's a precursor to our reality TV competitions of today. Obviously, people are not uh, dying. People are not being killed on screen for our entertainment. But it is worth noting that time and time again, you will see science fiction, speculative fiction, Uh, draw this line out to its obvious conclusion or its obvious trajectory and say that, well, it's not inconceivable that we might get back to that point in the future. But this these dance marathons, which are not speculative, these actually happened. uh, They, they are part of this tradition of people want to see others in desperate situations. They get pleasure out of that. Now, if that sounds nihilistic. If that sounds uh, overly negative, I invite you to look at your TV and see how many reality TV shows bank on putting contestants in uncomfortable situations, humiliating situations, sometimes even dangerous situations. I'm not going to list them all because my podcast would be eight hours long, but with any thought behind it whatsoever, you can come up with a good 20 or 30 shows that just that's their bread and butter uh, is making contestants uncomfortable for the entertainment value of the viewer. So the, these dance marathons are part of that tradition. Now the stress of this situation being stuck in this dance hall, moving for almost two hours, every two hours and then getting a small break and then every two hours moving, this makes friendship impossible. Obviously, because the simple fact that only one couple can win, you understand that even if you befriend another couple, they're going to have to fall for you to be able to win. Uh, So friendships curdle and corrupt as this goes on because of the stress of the situation. Uh, We've already seen that Ruby and her partner kind of turn against Robert and Gloria because of what Gloria is saying to Ruby. So these existing friendships sour as the stress rises. Very early on, the pretense of dancing is dropped. And we talked about this a little bit early on in that those first few chapters where we kind of skip past the first section of the mar- marathon. It said that, you know, you're only, sp- you dance for a while and then the, the promoters are like, okay, you don't have to actually dance anymore. You just have to constantly move. You have to sway on your feet or walk around as long as you are moving. So it reveals the event is not really about dancing. It's this cruel endurance test for money. Um, and now let's talk about what I mentioned earlier, the derbies. Now this was kind of a bright idea by the management who is running this marathon in the book. And this is an event where each night couples must race around this track that's painted on the floor. And the last couple in line when the time expires is eliminated. Now that feels like just another cruelty, just like another way to lose and not get the money. But when you look at it in a way, it's actually kind of a kindness because it speeds the whole process up. It. Uh, makes the end come quicker so that you don't have to stand and move for, for some more hours. Now, these derby scenes are difficult to read sometimes because they, they are desperate, horrible things for the dancers to have to go through. And the males, the, the, the men have to heel toe. They can't actually run. They have to be walking. It's almost like speed walking. And the females have to keep up and they can run. 
but they actually have these belts. The men have belts that with handles on them and the women have to hold on to the handle and try to keep up. And it's clear early on that Gloria does not have the stamina for this. Robert can do this. Robert can, can stay in the middle of the pack, maybe not hoof it and try to win because often there's no, no reason or incentive to win. The whole point is just to not be last and be eliminated. But no matter how well Robert is fit for this, he's still a human. And it's still a, an am amazing, awful amount of stamina that's required for this, especially after you've been just moving constantly for days and weeks. And at one point, he gets a Charlie horse. Now, if you've never had a Charlie horse, I pray you never do. They're terribly, terribly painful. It's basically when a muscle in your leg just seizes up and locks up, and it really feels like somebody's just reaching in there, grabbing your muscle, and just yanking it out. It is so, so uncomfortable. So he has this scene where he has this Charlie horse and has to go lay down and have somebody basically beat the muscle with their fists until it loosens up, and it's just this awful, awful, painful scene. And it really shows the derby for what it is, which is almost torture. Uh, and of course you see the crowd become more interested when contestants are hurt or suffering. When he has this Charlie horse, there's a brief mention that people in the audience are standing up, looking around, seeing what's, what's going on. They want to, they want to see what's happening. And it's similar to that uh, pejorative that people kind of throw out about car races, that there are some people who are there just for the crashes. And while often that's a pretty facetious remark by no means am I foolish enough to think that there's not some truth in it. Uh, the whole concept of reality TV is that we want to see people in desperate situations. That's where the entertainment value is. So this really shows that to be true. The derbies also show that the management is not on the level. Again, we kind of waffle back and forth with the management. They do some kind things. They do some pretty deplorable things. And one of the deplorable things they do is they have this couple that they are going to have marry there at the dance marathon. And they use it as this promotional stunt. And we'll talk about the implications of using this, the sanctity of marriage as a way to draw in paying customers uh, in a little bit. But when a, that couple is in one of these derbies later, they come in last. It's obvious to everybody watching that they come in last, but the management actually cheats and says it's another couple who's going to be eliminated so that their promotional stunt will come off and they won't lose those spectators. They won't lose that money. So it shows that the management has really rigged the game against the dancers. They, they pull the strings and there's no rules by which the dancers can follow to really ensure that they're going to come to a good end by honest means. I said earlier that this episode is going to be a smaller episode, and I just looked at the time, and I think we're right on track to make this a rather longer episode. And I should probably tell you a little bit that this book, while small, has a depth of interesting topics and, and interesting points of conversation in it. So, But we're on our final point here, and that is how celebrity dehumanizes those that it kind of takes into its maw. Now, obviously this is set in California and set around Hollywood. And this is a place of polar opposites, especially at this time. Yes, we have this glitz and glamor and lives of privileged people and people who have it all. But 
it is contrasted by for those people to have those privileged lives. They are the tip of a pyramid of people who have to deal with poverty and despair every single day. And the whole concept of Hollywood is that no one is worth anything. No one has any intrinsic value unless someone can use them to make money. Money is the end all and be all of this. And if you can't assist somebody in filling their pockets, then you are literally worthless to them. Now, in the marathon, there are sponsorships. Some people can gain sponsorships and they get new clothes, better shoes, uh, maybe some better food, so on and so forth. But the sponsorships, in exchange for that, they literally put ads on the dancers. The, the jackets that they have them wear, the shirts that they have them wear, have their establishment on them so that people will see and, of course, give them money. So this strips the dancers of their humanity and reduces them to these moving billboards. They're, they're only existing so that they can hawk an item for somebody else. And this brings up the, the concept of you know product placement and reality TV. It, we see the promoters call for the applause for the sponsors, but not really for the dancers because the, the dancers don't really matter. They're, they're just something to plaster and add on. And in all these examples, humans basically just become simple money-making props. They're stripped of their humanity and they're just made to be these tools to make money. At one point, a couple tap dances and the announcers tell the audience to throw coins, not to like collect money. They don't pass the hat. They literally say, oh, throw some change down for these lovely kids dancing for you. And and people throw you know nickels and dimes and, and things of this. And it's just debasing and humiliating to to watch. But at the very end, you know, when they're done dancing, they bend down, scoop it up because that might be their, their next meal. So it really, the humiliation is, is pretty cringeworthy in this. And Robert does at, at one point equate the dance marathon to a bullfight. And that shows how little value is actually placed on the lives of the dancers. These, it doesn't matter what happens to the dancers. It only matters that they are there long enough to entertain the customers, the paying customers. Now I talked about that promotional wedding and that shows that the management doesn't really hold anything as sacred. You know, marriage is supposed to be an important, uh, a sacred thing. The whole uh, concept of marriage has its roots in uh, often religious beliefs. The, the, the idea that uh, it's a sacrament, it's, it's something that's supposed to be sacred. And they tell the couple, eh, it's you can easily get just a quick divorce after the marathon is over. It's no big deal. It'll really bring in the customers. Um, so it really shows that the management doesn't hold anything sacred, that, that even one of the most sacred institutions in our society, marriage, is, again, just another ploy to make money. At one point, an actress offers a $10 reward for the winner of that night's derby. And of course, that brings up the idea of betting on a horse race. And even the, the term derby, when I say derby, most people think of the Kentucky Derby, which is a horse race. So uh, making these people race around this track like horses is, of course, demeaning and dehumanizing. And I think what we'll end on is the title of the story 
itself, which we are not actually shown what this means until the very end. When Robert and Gloria have ended their time in the marathon, they've each got their $50 and they go out to the pier and they're looking out on the water, something that Robert used to find beautiful, but now has no feeling for whatsoever. And Robert is asked by Gloria and Gloria hands him a gun and says, please do this for me. Take me out of this world. And Robert does. But before he does, he remembers a time in his past when his grandfather, because the, this beloved horse stepped in a gopher hole and broke its leg, his grandfather is forced to shoot the horse to put it out of its misery. And after he recounts this in his mind, Gloria hands him the gun, asks him to do this, and he equates those two things. He says, you know, she is in misery just like that horse was. The kind thing to do is to take her out of it. Of course, that is dehumanizing to Gloria. Even if she wants it, it equates uh, humans to beasts, that if they're in misery, the best thing to do is not to help them, but to simply take them out of it. So when later he's in the back of the police car, a policeman asks him why he killed Gloria. Uh, Robert gives this title as an answer to his question. Well, they shoot horses, don't they? So he intended this as a kindness, putting her out of her pain and misery, but in retrospect, all it really does is cement the book's theme of dehumanization. At that point, Gloria is no longer a human capable of, of feeling in love and, and help, you know, getting her proper mental help. She is simply an animal to be put out of her misery, and Robert does, and in that respect, becomes an animal himself and brings the whole thing pretty well full circle. Guys, as always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you giving me your time and your ears for this. Our next episode in two weeks' time is going to be a putrid potpourri selection. Still kind of hate that name, and I'm trying to come up with an alternative, but if I do, I'll let you know. Our next book is The Long Walk by Richard Bachman. And if you've heard that name, Richard Bachman, and you know a little bit about the horror genre, you'll know that... There is another person behind that person, but we'll get to that when we talk about the book. As always, thanks to Swarm for the use of his music. He is working on an album at the moment, so when that comes out, I'll let you know where to find it. You can find this podcast, as always, at gildedinblood.buzzsprout.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And until next time, stay safe and stay spooked. <laughs>